Hi, everybody. Welcome to Humane Voices, the official podcast of the Humane Society of the United States. Today, we're going to be talking about cloak and dagger stuff, uh, covert ops, clandestine services. Uh, we're talking about going undercover, and I'm giving this a much more fun investigation that I think our special guest will actually say that it warrants, because actually going undercover for animals is probably not all fun and games. Um, it, it's not Tom Cruise bungee cording off into the into the CIA, I suspect, <laughs> although I am dying to know if we have done that. Um, but our special guest today is the Senior Director of Investigations at the Humane Society of the United States, Whitney Temus. Welcome. So happy to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I'm really curious. So um, I know I we're sort of done a done a tongue in cheek intro here, but I and I know you guys have a you have a really amazing team that go undercover to sort of record animal abuses that the public otherwise might not see. I mean, it it kind of all of your work goes back to that that it a, a sort of phrase in the animal animal protection world about you know if slaughterhouses houses had glass windows everybody would be vegetarian you know um and and it's sort of like y'all's job is to kind of per, put metaphorical glass windows out there for for folks that are for are unaware of the things that are going on so i'm really curious you know about your role um you know what can you even tell people about your job i mean do you have a cover story now or do you i mean are you able to tell people in your in your sort of personal life like what you do and what do you tell them I can now but mm -hmm. I mean when I worked as an investigator there's certainly a level of anonymity that you have to maintain in order to have that career mm -hmm. you need to really kind of keep things under wraps you can't have social media pages um there's a lot of effort that needs to be put into concealing your identity because it is your career but now that I've made it up the ladder a little bit to the senior director position, I can have my name out there. I can be on your podcast with mm -hmm. a full face without yeah. the mustache. Uh, we were we were hoping for the mustache, actually. <laughs> Maybe we can get those later on. We can also sort of twirl them. The nose, the glasses. Yeah, yeah the whole exactly. time. Just sit there and stroke a beard. That's yeah. That's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you, does your team actually ever use sort of I, well maybe you can't maybe that's like tradecraft and I shouldn't ask <laughs> but um do do you ever find I mean like th there's I, it's it's interesting I always feel like disguises are sort of there's like real like like elaborate disguises and then there's just sort of the way you present yourself in any given situation which it's you know that sort of can be a disguise and I'm curious can you talk about that at all I mean, that is a fair question, and it is on theme, considering how close we are to Halloween. So yes, exactly. I'm in yeah. that mode anyways. <laughs> but the um, no, we don't really you don't do elaborate disguises. But what I will say is that there are a lot of circumstances where somebody has to be somebody that they're not used to being. And mm -hmm. in that can come with wardrobe and it can come with personality shifting. And so it may not be, you know, the glasses and a nose and a mustache, but it can certainly be how you dress, how you behave, and then like little nuances about yourself or uh, th that you might have not have thought of otherwise. So it, it does have an element of that for sure. Mm. So some of it's almost like being an actor or actress and that you take on maybe even you know, whatever the region is you're in, kind of certain um, speak, kind of, uh, you know, that type of culture, I would imagine. Blending in. Yeah. It, yeah, it would be of an investigator's best interest to blend in. That is absolutely the idea. And so as impressionable as you can be in an area, I mean, when I worked undercover, um, you know, I could pick up an accent 
embarrassingly quickly before I, before I knew it, I was speaking in a North Carolina accent and I'd only been there like, you know, a couple of days and I like can't shake it even when I'm like on the <laughs> phone with my family. So it depends on who you are a little bit, but it does help to be able to pick up the regional culture of an area. So talk to us, Whitney, about, I'm fascinated with the background. Like, you know, I mean, when you ask little children, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, did you just think, I want to be an undercover investigator or what kind of brought you to that role? Yeah, never. I would never have thought that. (laughs) Um, So it, it, um, you know, just like life does, it just, it just works out funny that way. And so um, I started off by you know, wanting to be a zookeeper, you know, you love animals, you want to work with, you know, exotic animals. I got a degree in zoology at Oregon State University. And from there, I was working at zoos until I came to the kind of personal realization that it wasn't for me, that, um, that captivity wasn't the kind of situation that I wanted to be working with animals in and moved over to the sanctuary sector, started working in nonprofits and began managing a sanctuary in Florida for primates. I spent time working at Big Cat Rescue and formed a relationship with Carol and Howard Baskin there. Mm-hmm. And when I started working with them a little bit on legislative work, they ultimately put me in touch with uh, HSUS and the then Senior Director of Investigations who worked here. And it was really over a dinner with them at the Cracker Barrel where we chatted about Carol's background and how she got into it. And um, I really loved the idea of shutting down a fur farm. And it just, it became Mm. the idea that I could do that through undercover work just became an instant dream. But before that, I never knew that this position ever existed. Mm. Um, Not a clue. I didn't even know what a puppy mill was back in that day. So. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Can you share with some of the investigations one, I assume they've all been close. You can talk about them, but some of the ones that you've managed or been involved in. Yeah. um, My first case was a factory farming case at a South farm in Wyoming. Um, I've been in and out of Tennessee walking horse barns. I've been to countless numbers of puppy mills. Um, I've trained investigators for years and I did a six month case at a roadside zoo where I was uh, employed there and helped to raise their tiger cubs when they did photo ops when that was still legal in Virginia, which was not that long ago, Yeah, as well as a multitude of other programs that HSUS works on. Wow. So, I mean, Whitney, you mentioned, you know, a six months job. I, I mean, th- that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about this work. And I, I mean, I, I think it's also interesting, you know, being a, a movie junkie, like I think a lot of us are, I mean, it, it you sort of get an idea of what it's like to sort of live this quote, double life. But I can imagine that sort of being undercover in a situation where you're witnessing animal abuse for sort of day after day and having to document it, but not necessarily intervene must be really difficult. I mean, what is the what is the life of an undercover investigator actually like? Like what what was your experience when you were when you were involved at the roadside zoo, for example? It's really difficult. And mm-hmm. not only is it sort of difficult to to live alongside, but it's difficult to train for because oh, gosh, we, can't, yeah. we can't put our trainees through circumstances where they're actually witnessing abuse and having to act normal alongside it. So it's something that mm-hmm. you really have to face in the moment. And remember why you're there. But what I will say is that when you are wearing a camera, 
there is a different feeling, a different level of confidence when somebody is doing something in front of you that you know is wrong and you are just witnessing it because that's the investigator's job, right? It's not to make the situation any better or any Mm -hmm. worse. It is to be a fly on the wall as though you were not there. This is what the natural circumstance would be if you were not there. It's evidence. Yeah, absolutely. So it can be very difficult to stand alongside and witness and, um, there's really no way to prepare for it. So some days are worse than others, but when it is a very bad day, emotionally, it tends to be a good day for the investigation. Mm, so there's mm, like this slight wow. trade off. Yeah, of course. That's an interesting point for sure that, yeah, I mean, that's, I would imagine there is a high burnout rate. And, and if you're, so for example, that Carrie mentioned that six month job, I mean, you have to be there the whole time. So you're leaving your family, friends, your life to, I don't know, I'm picturing you're staying in a roadside hotel, you're watching videos at night of the investigation. I mean, that is your life because you're working, I assume, full-time job at, you know, as far as they know it, the the roadside zoo knows it. Tell us a little bit about the, the day-to-day, I mean, how that how that plays out, what any given day looks like. Investigators work two jobs at the same time. So, I mean, they are working the eight hour shift for whatever is their target facility. They're doing all of the tasks that they are responsible for in that role. And at the same time, they are documenting cruelty to animals, uh, USDA violations, harsh conditions, you know, uh, food quality, jagged metal. I mean, anything that they're looking for that would be hazardous to animals. They're gathering conversations and confessions from management. And, um, and so during all that time, it is very consuming mentally because they're also witnessing situations that they wouldn't necessarily or ethically agree with. Mm. So afterwards they go back to their hotel or their apartment, they're uploading all their footage they are watching their footage and reliving mm-hmm. this situation through watching it. Then they're writing up all of their daily log notes, which they do every single day and they submit every day. And then they're talking to their manager on the phone and possibly recapping. So by the end of each day, it is an extremely long day. They're physically exerting and they've relived a, mm. I mean, borderline traumatizing day, depending on where mm-hmm. you are. They've relived it multiple times. And so it is emotionally exhausting as well. So six months sounds like a long time and it really is, but the time does fly if you're working full time. You have to decompress, I assume, when you go back to your, you know, your life and doing, you know, outside of that investigation, do you just have to decompress, I would imagine? Yeah, you know, investigators get time off between assignments for sure. Mm. Um, so that they can, you know, go to doctor's appointments and visit their family and take care of any responsibilities that they have at home. Because when you are on the road, you cannot uh, connect with your life very easily. Mm. And so any responsibilities or connections that you have have got to be either put on hold or have a pin put in it until you can come back to that circumstance, which is one of the reasons it's difficult to recruit for investigators. Mm-hmm. It's a big of course. Yeah. It's a sacrifice for the investigator, but also for your family and loved ones, because you have to kind of, you know, separate yourself from that to go do that investigation too. Yes. In order to get a blessing, I mean, in my experience, uh, in order to get a blessing from the people in your life, they have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And they really got to say to you, it is more important that you are out there 
that is where we need you to be. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. the pull to come home is so strong. And it can be hard to find people who are in personal relationships that support being gone. And that's fair. Yeah. I, Whitney, one of the things I've always thought must be just incredibly difficult about this work. I mean, and I, I think about the work we do here at the Humane Society and there are difficult days, but at least we can all talk to each other and talk to our colleagues and talk to our friends at work and have some relief. And I imagine that just for investigators, not only can they not talk to their colleagues, their their daily colleagues, but they actually have to sort of hide who they are all the time. And I mean, is that something that's difficult to navigate in terms of managing those sort of personal slash professional relationships during these periods? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's different for every investigator, right? Because we're all just people and people are different. Mm -hmm. Some people like a lot of connection and support. Some people do very Mm -hmm. well with just their marching orders. Yeah, of course. For the most part, you know, our manager of investigations, one of their main roles is forming a connection with the investigators and maintaining a strong level of support while they're in the field and providing them any of that kind of help that they need to get through Mm. it. Because it can be very challenging when you're living in an environment where nobody knows what you do. Even if you form a friendship with somebody, you don't get to tell them why you're really there. And, you know, it is a small percentage of people who live this way. And so, when we have opportunities to bring our investigators together on a single assignment, we try and take those opportunities as much as we can so that they can connect and help each other through tough times of what it's like to be undercover and struggling with those circumstances. Um, And so, you know, it's a small world, but we do what Mm -hmm. we can. I think we talk in our business, as you know, Whitney, a lot about compassion fatigue And I think, you know, for certainly shelter workers on the front line for people in policy, but I would think the compassion fatigue is next level when you are working on investigations and doing the kind of work that you and your team have done. I mean, that support and that connection would be so critical, but the end game is just the impact it has. I can, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think of this example Um, there was a horse soaring. You mentioned that earlier, HSUS investigation. We were doing some education around that with a colleague of mine, Keith Dane, that's been on this podcast before. And folks that came to the table, the booth that we had were asking about what's horse soaring. And when we showed them, you know, we had video there, the investigation, just the difference, the, the, I think the impact that had versus what we were saying, what Keith was sharing, and then we even had, you know, some of the equipment they used, but that video, that Mm. investigation, it was like, yes, I get it. This is really, really cruel. And so that is the impact I think, you know, these investigations have, but I think it'd be great if you can share a little bit about that. And you mentioned earlier, you kind of do this knowing that there will be good out of it. It's true. Um, I Honestly, I really appreciate you telling me about that a little bit because it always helps to hear where the impact comes in because the impact of our work can be difficult to measure when you compare Mm -hmm. it to other departments at HSUS where they have the numbers on exactly how many animals were helped in this circumstance. And ours, you you never quite know because so many of our investigations do get released a fair amount of them do not. They're for mm-hmm. data collection or for photographs um, and, you know, laws will pass and you never know how many animals are affected by a particular law. So impact can be difficult for us to measure. And I'm learning how to do that in this new role. But 
the videos themselves do have a very strong personal impact. And I remember the very first time I saw an undercover video sitting in my computer lab in my community college and started crying, uh, sitting next to all of these strangers. And I try and remember that at Mm -hmm. times because, you know, being in this field of work, you do get lost in the weeds and you kind of forget how people can really feel impacted by the footage um, because at, at this point I can watch footage while I'm eating my cereal in the morning at my desk, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I appreciate that insight. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a gateway for so many animal advocates that they, they, I bet if we pulled the majority could tell you the first time they learned of an investigation or some issue through that type of work. And I think we have so many listeners, I'm sure that would, would relate to, oh, I learned about this issue from some undercover investigation. I mean, and you're right, maybe you can't always quantify that impact, but but if you could, it has to be in thousands and millions of mm-hmm. animals that are positively impacted by that work. Yeah, Kelly, that's I think right. that's a really good example of like the one that you mentioned earlier about soaring, I think is a particularly good one because it's it's one of those examples where sometimes I think we have language which is that not everybody understands what soaring is. And then you see a video of what is actually happening to these horses and it just slices through all the clutter and you're like, oh, that's horrific, right? And it's it helps explain it in a way that just sometimes language can't touch. And I say that as a devoted language person, but it's, it's you know, mm-hmm. it's the 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 imagery and the footage of these animals and what they go through couldn't be captured without this. Yeah. And I think there's a certain am- amount of just respect for investigators, for not only animal advocates, but I think the, the general public, because while we all think, oh, gosh, what a sexy job that might be and so fun and exciting, mm-hmm. when we stop and think about it, we understand the reality of what you have to go through to get that, knowing it'll have an impact. But that is, I think it's only a handful of people that can truly not only, you know, lead that double life, but handle the, be able to watch the video and do the job while you're eating cereal to get that video off to someone that's going to then, you know, make a policy change from it or Mm -hmm. do something with it. I mean, it's, it's, it really is pretty inspiring that folks exist that could do it because I think so many could not. Yeah, that's fair to say. Mm. Absolutely. I think that undercover work is one of the greatest things that people can do for animals. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't be sitting in this chair. I've been in this Mm. department for over 10 years now, and I truly believe that investigations is critically important to the shape of the future for animal welfare. And I encourage anybody, any listener who is interested in making that level of an impact and who can you know, who can juggle their life in a way that they can be away for months at a time to give it a shot. Because Mm -hmm. it may seem like people can't do this. Like it takes a certain kind of person and it does, but it is an incredible experience. And to know that you're there to help animals really does make it worth it. It really does. As you have stepped away from some of those investigations and worked with people that are up and coming in that field, what's kind of the general, uh, your best piece of advice that you give young investigators that are just starting off and doing the work that you've done? You know, it's it's going to sound ironic considering what we've been talking about, but um, one of the pieces of advice that I would typically give is to not think about the impact when you're there. Mm-hmm. It can be 
you know, you would think intuitively that when you are working a difficult day at a factory farm, that your power within yourself would come from thinking about what is going to happen with this footage. But that is honestly an unknown because we don't know whether or not that footage is going to lead to something. You don't know if you're going to get a prosecutor that doesn't handle it right or that there's... Mm that you're going to get some somewhere in the system it's going to get lost or for some reason it doesn't turn out the way you think and then you will be disappointed that your time and your energy and your emotions were spent for something the main piece of advice that i tend to give is to focus on the situation at hand you care you are capable pay attention to what you're doing do it with care and focus on your day, focus on your task. Mm -hmm. It's it's very mindful thinking. What has it been like, and I'm assuming this has happened in your experience, where you've worked on the ground in investigation, and then at some point, you know, if it's an investigation that goes through the criminal justice system and, and the cruelty comes to light and there is some action that happens after, where maybe you've seen it shared on HSUS social media channels, or you've seen the end game of it. What's that like to, to see that come to fruition that, oh, I did all of that and it wasn't easy, but this happened? In my experience, I did have a successful investigation. I've had a couple. My first one was quite successful at the sow farm that I worked at in Wyoming. It led to nine people being charged with animal cruelty on 36 Mm. different convictions. And it was a very powerful message for sows as most factory farmed animals really don't get the justice that they deserve. So it is, Mm. it is no easy feat to go up against that. And our um, attorney, Leanna Stormont did a fantastic job when we had to go to court. And I got to see one of my photos in the New York times it was on a billboard. Um, so I get to see that it was worth the time, worth the effort mm-hmm. and the sacrifice of seeing so many animals killed in mm-hmm. that place. Well, and that's yeah. some of the, I think, beyond just the advocates and future advocates, once they learn about an investigation, the press, the, you know, those, the things that you can't quantify. I mean, think about the New York Times, its readership mm-hmm. online and in print. All of those folks became exposed to, you know, the cruelty. And there's no doubt that that was game changing for them. I mean, even when you play out that there wasn't justice for those specific animals, you know, untold uh, Mm -hmm. education and awareness was raised from that, which is which is really powerful. I think I think we have to sort of all recognize in the animal protection field that we're playing the long game all the time. Right. You know, right. So Whitney, I think one thing I wanted to ask um, before we sort of start wrapping is, um, you know, you mentioned that you're able to sort of watch your footage and kind of watch each serial, but you know, like I am assuming that that's not how you do po- what you'd post in a job description for an investigator you're hiring, like must be able to watch <laughs> terrible things over a bowl of cereal. So I am curious about like when you're actually looking for new investigators, like what are some of the qualities you look for that tell you, hey, this person would be good. This person can probably do this job. Well, um, we do have some key points that we like to hit when it comes to people's Mm -hmm. backgrounds. It's not so much education because a lot of the jobs that people may be applying for are often entry level. Um, But we do really appreciate when somebody has experience with animals. As you know, as anybody who's worked with animals knows, you know, working with animals is very dirty. 
You know, mm-hmm. you get uh, dirt and feces or vomit or blood uh, in your hands and under your nails and in your hair and in your mouth and in your food. And this is something when you are working with them that you cannot fake. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be comfortable enough yeah. with that environment. That, That's the um, top line you, of the job description. Comfortable say, with feces <laughs> on hands. Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to HR for hiring right now. I mean, this is really going to sell this thing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to start with feces in the food, but it's got to come up. It's best they know up front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, It also helps if they have a background with animal welfare in one way or another, whether Mm -hmm. that's shelter work or that's sanctuary work. Um, But to know that this person cares about animals is... It goes a a really long ways because when somebody is, when their job is to go and film the welfare of animals, you want to make sure that they know what they're looking for, Mm -hmm. you know, that they can detect uh, fatigue or they can detect a low body score. And when their job is to hold an animal up in front of their camera or set it down and film to see whether or not it's ambulatory, whether it can walk or lay down, Mm. we don't want somebody who is just going to toss that animal to the side or somebody who's going to be rough or inappropriate. We want somebody who comes with heart and Mm -hmm. we can trust that they're going to take care of that situation or that animal in that moment. Um, and that that will drive their investigative curiosity as well. How is that animal doing? I need to go check back on that animal today. Um, it's not enough necessarily for somebody to say like, I've had pets my whole life, but for somebody to say, I have dedicated my life to helping animals really tells me that I can trust somebody who's on the road doing this Mm -hmm. for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want people to watch these videos and understand that everything that we do is ethical. We don't set up any situations to film them. We don't entice anybody or or coerce anybody. Mm -hmm. Everything is very authentic. Our investigators are very professional and any footage that comes from HSUS is credible. Yeah. Um, we always follow the laws and you can guarantee that, you know, whatever it is that we bring to the table is legitimate. And I really just want to say to any listeners as well, that I respect and cherish anybody who watches the footage because it takes courage to do it. And even though there are probably a lot of vegans um, or animal advocates that are a part of this audience already. So I'm likely preaching to the choir. I think it is still important that we are aware of where, where the needle is Mm -hmm. on animal welfare and what still exists today so that we know how to vote with our dollar and what we can do to help push for a more humane world. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for hitting on that. Yeah. Thanks for letting me stand on my soapbox. All right, Um, Whitney, well, uh, audience, you have heard it here. If you are looking for a job where you get poop in your hair and blood under your nails and you can't talk to your friends and you can't talk to your family and you're living in tiny little places for six months on end, but you might be able to change the world for animals if you have the guts for that, if you want to play the long game, um, maybe this is a job for you. And if it's not, then please 
make sure to watch the videos, learn more about the subject, because even if you're not in, in the weeds or in, in the pig pen or wherever the investigators work is taking them, there's still things that all of us who can't do this incredibly tough work can do on from the outside to help animals and to help what uh, to help the animals that whose who sort of lives are being revealed by the work that Whitney and her team do. So again, Whitney, thanks so much for being here. Um, and we will talk to you the next time on uh, Humane Voices. Thank you, Carrie. And thank you, Kelly. It was great talking to you both today.